Hello, everybody. That's for you. That's mine. So good to see you. Happy New Year. Welcome back. It's so good to be together with family again. Special mention, Anton and Dahl. Why don't you just stand up so we can say hello. Some of our, some of our most loved. Back with us this morning. Maybe at the end, just give us a few minutes of update of what's going on in Africa and what you're doing and some of what God's been doing in the last... How long have you been gone now? Seven months? Must be seven or eight months. It, it feels like years. That's a good thing. This morning I'm going to be speaking on treasures and anxieties. So turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 6. In your Bibles, it may seem like quite an odd topic, a new year topic to start off, speaking about treasures and anxieties. But as I was thinking about it this week, it was actually um, started by my boy running outside at about 9 o'clock at night. I was sitting outside looking at the stars and he came and he was really, something had really scared him. And he said, Dad, I'm so scared. Can I come out here? you like on the other side of the house and I'm just feeling really scared. And so we opened the Bible to Matthew 6 and we started reading it together and then he went back off to bed. And I just got me thinking on this text. And, you know, it's this odd anxieties and, you know, you've just come off holiday, but maybe in a your life sense, in a micro level, maybe there's a whole bunch of anxieties. I know statistically around the world this is quite an anxious time because many of us have overspent our budgets. So it's a financially quite an anxious time after you come back from holidays or maybe for you the anxiety is coming back to work and you feel overwhelmed. Maybe it's, you know, you've been able to ignore that inbox for three weeks, you've been able to ignore that boss, that colleague, that person you employ, whoever it is, all these different things that happen in your workplace and coming back is actually quite an anxious panic kind of feeling. Maybe you didn't steward your rest all that well. And you gave too much of it away to your in-laws. And now you're deeply regretting <laughs> that you don't have any rest. Doesn't that, doesn't that make you anxious sometimes when you've used like the best part of your year's leave and you think like, crumbs, that was my rest and you still feel tired and you've got another whole year to get through or maybe the kids didn't sleep or, or maybe it's not on a personal level but on a wider level, on a macro level. Maybe you've been watching some of the news and Donald Trump carries on being Donald Trump and all the upheaval that he creates. Or maybe you've been watching the, the Clifton Beach stuff with the EFF and all of these things lean into a political uncertainty in our country, which is really scary, right? And it creates these anxieties inside of us. Or maybe, maybe it's the e- economics of our country and the corruption and the guptas and all of this other stuff. And I'm sure you've had loads of opportunities this holiday around bras with family and cynical friends and cynical people who've been saying all sorts of things in the reasons why they're leaving South Africa and off they go and these anxieties begin to bubble in our own hearts, right? Just me? I'm the only anxious one in the room? I don't think so. Or maybe it's thinking about your kids and your family over this holiday period and just thinking about the world and the moral upheaval that's going on. Just look at the gender debate and everything that's happening and just wondering how in the world do I bring up my kids in the midst of this? How do I do it? If you weren't anxious before you came here this morning, I'm sorry. (laughs) Next week, we start a series. Ollie's going to be preaching on Christian hope. And what is is hope in in the Christian sense of the word? Ollie, by the way, is on holiday this morning. So Christians are not exempt from these concerns. We face the same world, the same concerns. And so while we should be concerned about them, in fact, we actually should be praying about them and we should be part of some of the solutions to some of these things. So we're not exempt from them, but we must do it. We must remain part of the world while remaining hopeful in the gospel. If we begin to be pessimistic and pessimism becomes our default, we've missed what the gospel is about. So the questions we need to ask ourselves is how can I move forward with faith instead of with fear? How can I move forward with faith instead of with fear? Or how can I make sense of my changing world? How can I help my children to make sense of a crazy changing world while teaching them to hold on to an unchanging gospel? Because this is the hope we profess, right? So the unchanging gospel, the good news, you know it's not the first crisis to, to come across the world, just in case you just live in the Western bubble that this is the only time and place that ever existed. Do you know that the good news remains good? 
That in the midst of all this political turmoil, personal and global, we still have reason to rejoice. In fact, I think as we see it getting worse and worse, we actually have more reason to say, here's more, this is good news. This is good news. Here's the good news, that there's a new kingdom that's not quite like our kingdom. Who doesn't want to live in our kingdom right now? Many days I'm saying, me, I don't want this kingdom. I don't want this kingdom. And here's a new one. Anyone get tired of the government? There's a new king. There's a new ruler. This is good news. This is good news. It's incredible news that we have a father who wants to take what's going on in heaven right now. And he teaches us through Jesus' prayer to say, Lord, what's going on in, in heaven right now? We ask that you would do that on earth and use us to bring that change here on earth. Isn't that good news for our world? Isn't that good news for poverty and for brokenness and for social change that we're crying out for in our country? Anyway, before I get too distracted, Matthew chapter 6. Let me give you a little bit of context. It's a continuation of perhaps Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And in verse 6, chapter 6, verse 1, he kind of gives us the, the underlying theme of the whole chapter. And this is what he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And so the whole of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is concerned with how we live. How do we live in a way that is right before God? Which is another way of saying righteous. How do we live in a way that is right before God? And the question in this text is, what is your motivation in practicing your righteousness. And Jesus begins by using three examples, and I'm not going to go into them in detail because we're not going to spend our time there, but he uses, he uses how we give our money, he uses how we pray, and he uses how we fast. And he says, are you doing this to please people, like big trumpets, and like, look at me, look at me, I'm a show-off prayer, I use big words and I throw scripture in all over the place, or are you doing it that God can see you doing it in the quiet and he's pleased with you, And so Jesus starts off with this, with this motivation, what motivates us in right living before God. But then the next section that we're going to spend our time on this morning is about our attitudes. So there's this, motivating, there's this motivation, and then there's what are your attitudes towards certain things. And Jesus picks two things. He picks our treasures, and he picks anxiety. And we're going to look at those through this grid this morning. So read with me from verse 19. <clears throat> do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body and what you will put on. Just notice how elementary those aspects of your life are. This is not the luxuries. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If you're not a Christ follower, you don't know your Old Testament. Solomon was one of the great kings of the Old Testament who lived in great splendor and glory was the hallmark of his kingdom. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? 
Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Quite a long piece. Won't you stand with me? We're going to just pray right here as we've read that text. If you're comfortable to close your eyes, won't you do that with me? And if you're comfortable to just lift your hands as a sign of surrender, just, just in front of you, just if you're comfortable, do that with me. Father, we come this morning in front of your word and we ask for life change. When you speak about our motivation and you speak about our attitudes, Lord, we look into our own hearts, especially over a time like Christmas where we may have been away and we have time to think about our families and ourselves, God, and we see so much junk inside of us and we need to come before you and say, teach us to live right, God. Teach us, change our motives, change our attitudes before you. Father, in this room this morning are many with many anxieties. Many distractions, many different treasures that would take their devotion and their time and pull them away from you. And God, we want to ask this morning that you would help us to surrender before you again. Holy Spirit, we invite you to speak to us through your word. Challenge us, rebuke us, change us, Lord. I pray that we would not be like the author in James says, a man who sees himself in a mirror and then goes away and forgets what he sees. But Lord, as we see ourselves this morning in the text, as we see ourselves in the anxieties and in the treasure seeking, God, that we would be like a man who sees himself in the mirror and says, God, change me. Let this year be different in my life. We ask for faith in those things to come to pass because of the wonderful work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit in our hearts. In your wonderful name, we ask these things. Amen. Please take your seats again. So Jesus says, part of your right living is to consider your motives. Why are you doing what you're doing? And then he says, another part of your right living before God is your attitudes towards your possessions. Now, I don't think this is the only thing I think it's just an example that Jesus has chosen because it's a very powerful litmus test of our hearts. When you can see how a person spends their money or the way they deal with their possessions, it's a very powerful indicator of what's going on in their hearts, like a gauge, like a fuel gauge in your life. And so there's a worldly attitude or a worldly way to deal with possessions and money and treasure, right? We see it around us all day, every day. What's the worldly way of dealing with treasure? Hoard it. Get as much of it as you can. Get it all in and keep it coming. Just, just, when, when is enough? It's never enough. Just keep it coming. This is the worldly way. We take our treasures and we put them in an earthly storehouse. Right? What's the earthly way of dealing with anxiety? Well, we, we constantly worry about what we don't yet have. That's anxiety in a nutshell. We worry about what we don't have. So we worry about our children because we don't have security that they are going to be okay until they're 105. Or we worry about the education, or we worry about these things because we don't have security around it. So what we don't have worries us. In verse 32, we're going to get to it just now, says the Gentiles run after all these things. But what Jesus seems to point to in this passage, and we're going to look at it in a bit more detail, is that when we are living right before God, it should deliver us from both greed and wanting more and more and more in our lives and anxiety. What don't I have? What don't I have? It should completely alter our attitude. And so this is how Jesus deals with it. He deals with it in these two sections. And the first section is, number one, he deals with the love of wealth and treasures in our hearts. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, he says. So he puts a principle in place and he puts it negatively and positively. He says, I don't want you to do this. I do want you to do this. So here's the principle. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But do positively lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where these things don't happen. Now I want to be extremely clear that when scripture speaks about treasure, it's not just your money. 
It's not just your possessions. Treasure is anything on which you can set your heart. Anything, think about that. Anything on which you can set your heart. So treasure can be just about anything. Your kids, your marriage, your spouse, your time, your career. All of these things can be our treasures. And then Jesus says, well, you have a choice. There's these two storehouses, and you get to choose, right? So there's this one storehouse over here. There's all the political turmoil you can wish for. There's all the anxiety of... of, uh, economic downturn and doom and gloom. And on top of all of that, there's moral failure. So there's a whole bunch of people, in case you didn't know this, who are really glad and happy to steal your money. They're even glad and okay to steal your life. Jesus is right. That's the one storeroom. You can put all your stuff in there, or there's another storeroom, and this storeroom is up in heaven. And if you put stuff up in the heavenly storeroom, it's safe. And then it's kind of like in the text. He doesn't say this. I wish he did. But it's kind of like sarcastically, you choose. Where are you going to put it? Where are, you going to, where are you going to put it? Jesus says it. The words that he uses are like this. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Or where there's political upheaval. Or where people can steal it. Or where things can go wrong. Or economies can crash and your investments are suddenly worth nothing. And I'm sorry if you own Stanoff. Or... You can choose to put them where they're safe. And then Jesus hits it home with two analogies. And I'm not going to spend too much time on them. The one is the analogy of the eyes. And this is basically what he's saying in that passage. If you set your heart on earthly treasures, if you set your heart on earthly treasures, you are going to become spiritually blind. It's going to hinder you spiritually. It's going to hinder your spiritual zeal. You're not going to be able to see right anymore. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If you keep putting your treasures in the wrong place and you insist over and over again on on hankering after earthly things and earthly ways, you will reap an earthly inheritance. You will begin to see less and less spiritually. So there's a spiritual danger that Jesus is pointing to. And then he says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when it damages your relationship with God. Because no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now this is, it's worth just mentioning here in case someone's going, I can lose my salvation. This is not a salvation text. If you go and read the context of Matthew in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, it's mostly speaking around rewards and our spiritual rewards. But it is clear when you read this that if you are in, insisting on, in, on prioritizing your treasure and your treasure and your stuff and, and, and that greed and that anxiety and everything else and putting it all in, in your little box over there, that don't be surprised when your relationship with God is damaged because you can't serve both. You can't be fully committed to Christ and fully committed to your stuff. You must choose. And so we, we see some of the outflow of this in people wondering, well, why don't I feel close to God when I pray? Why don't I, I have the same sins in my life. For 15 years, I've been fighting the same stuff over and over and over and over. And I never, ever seem to have any victory in my life. Well, why is that? I, maybe, maybe your question is, I wonder why I keep on making bad decisions. Everywhere I look, I, I have make bad financial decisions. I make bad career decisions. I make bad uh, dating decisions or whatever it might be. Maybe your eyes are damaged. Maybe you can't see right. I don't think it's a great mystery. I think that when we become more and more concerned with our little kingdom, our little world, and we care so lightly for the things of God, just, they're just incidental in our lives, so, so lightly for His purposes, we can hardly be bothered with those things. Or maybe we say, you know how little time I have? How can I give any time to, to those things? When we do that, we damage our eyes and we're trying to serve two masters and God in his love and his mercy and his grace will not have another idol in your heart. He won't allow it. Are you with me? You're very quiet. 
So that's how Jesus deals with the love of wealth. Now let me be clear, wealth is good. Wealth can be used for God's purposes. Wealth is one of the ways, or finances is one of the ways that God, I think, teaches us more about faith than any other thing. And personally in my own life, that's been true. Wealth can be used to further missionary advance around the world. It can be used for exactly what I was speaking about in Jesus' prayer. His kingdom coming now on earth. How does that happen? How does God's kingdom happen on earth? It happens when we, when we lose our grip on some of our, position, our possessions and some of our finance and some of our time and some of our, our expertise and our skills and we give those away to others around us. So the problem is not wealth. The problem is the love of wealth. When it becomes something that our heart is so set on. Do you know how you can, how you can gauge if you're sitting there and wondering, I wonder if this is something for me. Can you laugh at your money? Can you just pull out like some turnaround notes occasionally and just go, <laughs> you don't own me and just give them away? Can you do that? Can you laugh at your money? Here's another, another a little gauge. Can you share your car? Someone comes to town. Can you give them your car for a week and it doesn't bother you? Can, you? can you be driving in the rain and see some poor gogo that's busy walking on the road with her bags on her head and she's, she's drenched? And can you say, come into my car, I want to take you home? Or are you worried about your leather seats? Can you let anyone encroach on your time? See, these things become such treasures to us that they get into our hearts and they, they usurp the rightful place of God in our lives. The second thing that Jesus deals with is he deals with the danger of anxiety. Now, I know that I'm treading on very slippery ice here in our, in our Western way of thinking about anxiety. But anyway, the Bible teaches it, so I'm going to go ahead I used to think that only the wealthy had to worry about these verses, about treasure, you know? Like, you know, only if you're wealthy, then you have to worry about losing it. But when we did our series, Affluenza, like, I think it was about two years ago, we did a whole series on money and we were talking about this. It really came home to me that there's many, many, many people, maybe even more than wealthy people, who wish they were wealthy. And they don't have the money to worry about, but they wish that they did. And so they live their whole lives idolizing an ideal or this dream of what they could be if they had when one day they do have. And so their, their, their purpose on life and the, for God and, their, and his purpose, his, his way of working with them in his kingdom is completely hamstrung because they're always hankering after these other things. And so it's not just when you have treasures. So those of you who don't have many earthly treasures, don't go like, whew, I'm off the hook. You might be even more in danger. So Jesus follows a, a similar pattern here. Let's go back into the text. And he starts with a principle, and the principle is do not be anxious about your life. I just want to make a point here. This, this little phrase, do not, is one of the command phrases. It's the same phrase that he uses when he says do not commit adultery. It's the same one that he uses when he says, do not steal, do not lie. And all of those are very black and white for us. But when it comes to anxiety, with our modern way of thinking, all of a sudden you're like, oh, 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 oh this is gray. I just want to point out that scripture says, do not. Jesus says, do not. Which means that it's a simple and straightforward command that to be anxious is outside of the plan of God for your life. I want you to hear that this morning. If you're struggling with anxiety, and I mean not one shred of anxiety, of, I don't mean one shred of condemnation over your life. I want grace to flow this morning. I want you to leave encouraged. But I want you to hear this clearly from Scripture, that to be anxious is outside of the plan of God for your life. Therefore, if you are outside of the plan of God for your life, the Bible calls that sin. And we're going to deal with that a little bit more just now. But I want you to know right now as I say that, I know some of you are going, <gasps> Jesus is not sitting in heaven laughing at you. He's not thinking, oh, look at them and all the anxieties trying to figure it all out. Look at them, these poor people running around like headless chickens. Hebrews 4.15 says that he sympathizes with us in our weaknesses because he himself he knew what it was like to walk here. Do you not think Jesus was tempted to anxiety? Go and read the, the account of the Garden of Gethsemane and tell me that Jesus was not tempted more than we could ever be to anxiety. But then as we read this text, we see such a beautiful thing. Jesus begins to reason 
with people. He begins to give them reasons around anxiety. And if you are struggling with anxiety this morning, I want you to know that Jesus wants to reason with you. He doesn't want to cast it out of you or some, he wants to reason with you. So let's read it together. Therefore, I tell you, verse 25, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life, I want you to listen to the argument that Jesus makes. This is him reasoning with you. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. And he carries on. So now what's, what's the argument? He's applying spiritual logic. And this is the spiritual logic. From greater to lesser. Can I be a little teacher here this morning? Say that with me. From greater, from greater to lesser. Okay, you should never say stuff you just don't understand what you just said. All right, I'll explain it to you now. What Jesus is saying is if God gave you life, right? If God gave you life, scientists can't figure out exactly what's going on. He's the one who breathed creation into the world with the spoken word. This is the God that we serve. This is the God that we, that we worship on a Sunday morning and all through the rest of our lives. Then Jesus is saying, could he not then give you some food? Do you see his argument? Greater to lesser. He can create all of this. He can give you your entire life. Can't he give you a bit of food? And then he uses, it, he uses it again. And he says he made, your, he made your body. The intricacies, the biology of this human body with its billions of cells and we can't even figure out one of them. He knows. He made it. He can count the, the hairs on your head. And then he says, and then you worry about clothes? For real? This is the argument that Jesus is making and he's saying surely he can care for you look at the look at the lilies and what i love about these texts is when you when you think about jesus we just think maybe jesus just knew what a lily was like we don't think about him stopping and taking a lily and actually considering it and as a child maybe or as a teenager and looking at this lily and looking at the beauty and then thinking about solomon and his glory and then this all comes to bear on jesus in this parable when he shares and he uses this analogy are not the the birds of the air more uh, that they neither sow nor reap they don't know how to gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them are you not of more value than they Nugen, are you not of more value than they don't let the nature people tell you you aren't that the sparrow outside and you are equivalent you're not you're far more valuable and then he says this interesting verse 27 And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? In other words, don't you know that all your worry in the end serves for absolute naught? It serves for nothing. Now, let's come back to this issue of sin, because I told you I was going to come back around to it. If that verse is true, if Matthew chapter 6 verse 27 is true, that we cannot add an hour to our lives, by being anxious. Let's think about why Jesus would issue a command like, do not be anxious. So if Jesus is saying anxiety can add nothing to your life, but we all know from experience, personal experience, or those that we love, that anxiety can take a hang of a lot from you. Anyone have experience of that? Anyone struggled with sleep because of anxiety? Anyone struggled with health? Because of ongoing anxiety and stress in your life. Anybody struggle to find peace and joy because of anxiety in your life? Anybody struggle with mental health? So surely if God is a loving father who wants to protect and nurture and care for his children. And there's this thing which could rob us of a huge amount of joy and peace and health and life. Surely it makes beautiful sense that he's going to look at it and say don't do that. He's going to issue this command that says, don't be anxious. It's not not him trying to condemn you. It's not you having to sit there and feel like, oh no, I felt anxious and now I'm condemned. No, he's not trying to do that. He's trying to bring you into life. He's trying to bring you into joy and say, you don't have to live there. I know you're going to feel like that, but you don't have to live there, Christ followers. So here's here's the argument that Jesus is making in this passage. 
I'm saying it in my own words. A father takes his kids on Christmas holiday. He pays for the flights. He pays for the hotel where they're going. He pays for Uber. He pays for the food. He pays, he pays for everything. But the whole time, one of his kids is sitting there the whole time, anxious and concerned and worried. Is he going to be able to buy me an ice cream? This is the metaphor that Jesus is employing with the greater to lesser. He's done all of that. And we come and we say, you know, God, I, I, I know you're big God, but, but I wonder, can you, can you help me with my, with my paycheck at the end of this month? Can you help me? Is it possible that you could, could help? We come and we bring our children before him and we, and we say, God, you know, could you, could you sustain them? Could you help me get these, these little creatures in, into some kind of fit way to go to university and be loved and cared and, and nurtured and some kind of whole human beings? Could you help me, God? You who created life. So we see this God who creates and sustains and the sun rises at his command and sets at his command. And go and sit outside sometimes instead of watching TV and look at the stars. We have beautiful stars in Stellenbosch. It's not that bright. You can see them. We wonder how, if God can, can help us with our marriage choices or our careers and these things flood us with anxiety day after day and week after week and then jesus beautifully gives us a way to deal with it because i always i love this about scripture it doesn't ever just tell you just do this and you know like i do sometimes with my kids just because i said so it gives beautiful reasons jesus verse 28 and why Are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the fields, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Or we go back up to verse 26. Are you not of more value than they. When we fix our eyes on our little kingdoms, on our little worlds, and on our little anxieties and little treasures, and I'm not trivializing what you're going through. I'm not trivializing what you may face, but they are small compared to the greatness of God. They're small, and I'm concerned that we constantly losing sight of the greatness of our God. Culture is bombarding us and telling us he's smaller and smaller and smaller and less and less powerful. And the more that we believe that lie and swallow that lure, we begin to think that our our treasures and our anxieties get bigger and bigger and bigger because God is getting smaller and smaller. I thought about it in Stilbar when we were, we were on holiday just outside Stilbar in our caravan and we went to the river, you know that, that river that goes into Stilbar and as the tide goes out, it, the, the current goes down like this and people arrive, there's like this craze going on. Anyone who was in Stilbar saw huge blow-up flamingos and huge blow-up swans, like massive, so big they go on the roof of people's cars. They tie them on the roof and take them down to the beach. And not like one or two, loads of them. Then they go all the way up the river and they jump on these things and they float all the way down to the sea. And they bring them all the way back up again. And this is like a, we did it with our kids, just with little ones. And they'd go and they just leave them. It's wonderful. Okay. And it's like, this, this thing was making, me, was making me think about this thing of anxiety. And all the while, it's like we're busy blowing up our anxieties. It's like, you know, you know you're hyperventilating, you know. <laughs> And it's just getting like bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until you've got this massive like swan on top of your roof and you look like an idiot but no one told you. And you're driving around still by with this thing on your roof. And we, we hyperventilate some and we're so worried and, and our problems and our anxieties and our treasures get bigger and bigger and bigger and God is getting smaller and smaller and smaller in our minds. Even in our theology, even in our churches, we're teaching God in a way that's diminishing Him. We Christianity light. And you ask, well, is it any wonder that we're crippled by anxiety? Is it any wonder that we can't quite decide which treasure is really worth it? When we see God like this and we see all our stuff like this, then he's, oh, which one, where should I put my treasure? Because we don't have a right perspective of who God is. When our problems get elevated so high and our treasures are made so great and his kingdom is made so small and then God himself is made so small in our hearts and minds, is it any wonder that we think like this? 
Listen to one of my favorite authors, A.W. Tozer. He says, The God of contemporary Christianity, that's us, is only slightly superior to the pagan gods of ancient Greece and Rome. If indeed he is not actually inferior to them in that he is weak and helpless while they, the gods of Greece and Rome, at least had some imagined power. This is how we, he's not saying that's what he believes. He's saying that's how we view God. That even these other gods are, are greater than him. Now that, that idea, this powerless God left unchecked in the Christian heart, left unchecked in the Christian life, makes our little kingdoms blow up and blow up and blow up and our treasures become more and more and our anxieties become more and more. Our families become more important than God. Our career becomes so affirming to us that if anyone, including God himself, was to ask us to leave, we couldn't leave it because our heart has been put there. Without meaning to, I don't, I'm not questioning your motives and my motives, and without some, you know, there's not like a conscious decision moment where you just like decide, right, I'm now going all out for earthly treasures and stuff the heavenly ones. It's not like a, a moment like that. It's just as we shift there. We go slowly into the, the grave. But what we do, according to this text, is that we dishonor God. We begin to resemble the word that he uses is the Gentiles. The NIV translates it the pagan. We begin to resemble those who have no hope. They have no hope. They have no loving father who's speaking over them and saying, I will sustain you. I will protect you. Look, I gave you life. I'm going to give you food. I gave you this. I'm going to give you this. Verse 32, for the Gentiles seek after all these things. And so in some way, I think so they should. That's all they have. They don't know our father yet. And so, of course, they're going to chase after these things. But Christians, if we start to think that that's how we ought to live, and we get in that slipstream, and then Jesus continues and says, your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. And so to be anxious is to forget God's knowledge and care over our lives. He knows what you need right now. Just in your own heart, just say, God, that thing, whatever it is, that anxiety or that treasure that's coming to mind, like a red light that goes, dang, 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 as I'm speaking with you this morning. What is that thing? He knows. He's got you. If you're a Christ follower, he's, he knows that you need them. And then Jesus reaches, and I'm almost there, Jesus reaches this beautiful, practical conclusion. But seek first, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And so my plea for 2019, for this congregation, my plea is this to you. Examine your treasures and anxieties. Is there anything above God in your life? And then what we do is we deliberately, we can't just pray and ask God to come and miraculously change. We choose. We, we bring our own, our own will and we say, God, we want to align this with you. God, we bring our anxieties. We refuse them. We come before and we say, God, we have these anxieties. Help. He will help us, but we must still choose. And so we deliberately put everything that we can think, all our treasures and our, our stuff, we put it under our relationship to God. We say, Lord, we want to do your work. Your work, Lord, we want the calling of God over our lives to grow in righteousness. We want those things to be nurtured in our lives. And then we take our thoughts around our shaky government and our economic concerns and every other personal matter you could throw into that wheelbarrow and we prayerfully subject these things to the power and dominion of God. Lord, you say that you are the one who raises up kings and rulers. We don't know what you're doing, God, but God, we trust you. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for the rulers you've put in place. Who knows? Maybe the rulers that God has put in place will so shake this country that we see people who would never have come to Christ coming to him in droves because of the fears and the anxieties that they face. Who knows? That's what's happened in Zimbabwe. I've shared that story before that the lady told me that the greatest evangelist in Zimbabwe has ever seen is Robert Mugabe. More people have flooded into the churches since he was doing all his nonsense than any, any other preacher it's a Zimbabwean lady who told me that. 
And we, we take that before God and we say, Lord, I want to seek first your kingdom. I want to take these anxieties that cripple me and distract me. And I want to take these treasures which vie for my devotion and my attention and the affections of my heart. And I want to subject them again to you. Let me give you a, a practical example. So, a very real thing in my own life is protection for my family. I've got plenty of them. There's lots of things out there. A lot, of, a lot of stuff. Not just, you know, fall out of a tree and break your arm. There's a whole lot of more scary things to me than that. And so, we, I can spend my whole time that I'm with God out of a fear-based place crying out for protection over my family. Is that a bad thing to do? No, not, it's, not a, it's not a bad thing to pray for protection for your family. But if that's where I absorb myself and that's my treasure to the point that I spend all my time and energy and effort and that becomes like my, my God purpose on earth is to protect and, and nurture this family and I never pray about God himself. And then you look at it like this and you go before God and you begin to pray about how great he is. And you begin to pray about who he is and his character and his ability to take a, a nation, Israel, from Abraham and to lead them through far more than my family's ever going to go through. And to lead them through deserts for 40 years and then through this, this army and this army and this king and this exile and, and the Babylonians and Nehemiah, which we're going to look at later this year, and, and all these other things. And he's going to lead them through all these things. And suddenly, as I see my view of God getting bigger and bigger, and I begin to pray and worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in my own life, suddenly protection for my family I'm like of course you can do it God does that mean all my kids are going to live until a great old age no it might not but God knows more and my faith grows in him and I don't spend all my time fearfully praying that somehow my prayers are going to do you know what I'm saying our kingdoms become small in that moment I realized you know when I go before God and I pray I realize that God is a better father than I could ever be. Ever. When you get that revelation, that's an amazing thing. He's going to parent your kids better than you ever could. When they're 18 and they kind of say goodbye in some way, they're not saying, God's still there. Until they go. He's there. That's great comfort. So our kingdoms become small. His kingdom becomes large. I want to encourage you. This is practical. I want to encourage you. Look at nature. Recapture the art. Put your screens away sometimes and go and look at our mountain. You know the Stellenbosch mountain is gorgeous. If you're from Somerset West side, you can have the second view from, you know, the secondary view from that side or Franschhoek. But it's incredible. When I, when I look at that mountain, so often I think about who's lived here. Andrew Murray, great preacher here, I don't know how long ago, 150, 200 years, somewhere there. But all the people with all their fears, with all their anxieties, with all their wealth, with all their wine farms, with all their dreams and ambitions and the university students who've come, the thousands and thousands who've come through this town. And God is busy sustaining the insects on the mountain that he created. And that mountain has, has stood over Stellenbosch looking at it, metaphorically obviously. My son the other day driving in the car says to me, Dad, it really is amazing, isn't it, how we made Stellenbosch and then the mountains just like came up around it. <laughs> I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that very much. But part of how we practically work this out in our lives is we, what, what is it that fuels your view of God? You need to know the answer to that question. What is it that helps you see God for who he is? For me, part of that is nature. Part of that is the stars and, and the mountains and going running. And Yesterday I was running with Dirk in the vineyards and it's just incredible. It's just beautiful, not Dirk, the mountains. <laughs> not Dirk at all. What is it that fuels your vision and your view of God? Take time this year. Be concerned with His great kingdom. Seek Him. Now we're going to end with one more example of this greater to lesser. It's just two verses out of Romans. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Or just look on the screen behind me. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, 
who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you see the argument? If he would give you his son, if he would give you his son in Jesus Christ, would he not much more lead you through to salvation? Will he not give you these lesser things that you are asking him for? Maybe not in the way you expect him to. (laughs) That's so funny, my girl. I want to speak to you this morning. If you don't know this king, if you don't know this Christ that I'm speaking about, I I want to say this carefully and I want to say this as kindly as I can, but these promises are not for you yet. You can't claim a father who will protect you and sustain you and care for you when you do not know him. And now you might think, well, that's a cruel thing to say. Why do you finish your sermon saying such a mean thing to me? The meanest thing I could ever say to you, the most terrible thing I could ever say to you if you don't follow Christ, is you know what? Just keep going with your cultural Christianity. Your mom and dad were saved. I'm sure you saved too. I'm sure you're all right. That that is the cruelest, meanest, least loving thing that I could ever do to you is to sell you a lie about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to implore you. I want to ask you this morning. This king, when you read a text like this, you can't escape how good he is. You can't escape his care over our lives and the way that he fusses over the detail of our lives. Those of you who've been saved for many years, you know this. He fusses over the smallest things. And sometimes he just does something and you're like, oh God, that was, that was like the smallest little desire that I had and suddenly you made it just for me. It feels like that, right? How he fusses over the details of our lives. And I want to encourage you, if you don't know him, you can. That's what this text about Jesus is teaching us in Romans, that he gave his own son. How much more will he not give you all things? And this morning, the all things in his hand, he holds out to you, if you don't know him, salvation. Start there. It's the greatest miracle you will ever see that God takes a heart and changes it for him. The greatest miracle. I'd rather see that than people leaping out of wheelchairs. And let's see that too, but I'd rather see salvation. Come and do it, Lord. We're going to, actually before we take communion, Sarah is going to come and share a testimony with us just around some stuff she shared with me around anxieties and whatnot that just dovetails so beautifully with this. Ah, she, is it on? Let's welcome her. Come on, it's nervous, nerve-wracking getting up here. in this way, but anyway, um, uh, so previously in Philippians we were looking at hope, um, and we were speaking about a peace that surpasses all understanding uh, when you're feeling anxious, so it says do not be anxious, um, anyway, and it really struck me how that's super helpful from, in a worldly perspective, if you're going through some sort of trial, um, and from a worldly perspective, you kind of have the right to feel stressed or anxious. That's what we're told. It's okay because it's such a big thing. But if you've experienced anxiety in the way it kind of manifested in my life, is you often um, feel anxious when there's no reason to be. It's completely illogical if you really like suffer from anxiety. So maybe we've been speaking this morning about how we are looking at anxiety for a specific thing. You're anxious about something, but if you feel it like that, your stomach's kind of in a knot and um, your heart beats really fast and you just have no reason to to be feeling like that. Um, Sorry, it's going to be a bit long. Um, And you just feel so ridiculous that I eventually started... Uh, putting it on things in my life so I'd be like this is the reason that I feel anxious just because that feels a bit more okay instead of just feeling it for no specific reason but once I was willing to actually face the fact that although sometimes I faced heavy pressures and um, multiple deadlines I didn't have to feel that way Um, it didn't have to define me it wasn't who I was I didn't have to be like oh I suffer from anxiety I'm just an anxious person 
And for me, the opposite of ang anxiousness is, um, in my understanding, peace. So I started to um, look at scriptures that really um, speak into that. And one of them is in Isaiah, when he's prophesying about the coming of Jesus, the savior of the world, and he calls him the prince of peace. Um, and then in Colossians, it says, let the peace of Christ rule your heart, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. Then in Psalm 29, the Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. And finally, the one that I was speaking about in the beginning in Philippians, do not be anxious about anything, but by prayer and petition, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And the last thing you want to do when you feel anxious like that, you just want to pace. Um, and it just says, by prayer and petition. So I would pray, just, Lord, please just take this away. Um, in my busyness, I would just pray for that. And I reached a point where I couldn't do that anymore just because I couldn't function like that. So that's when I really just um, threw myself at his mercy and I knelt before him and I claimed those promises for him for myself that he promises in scripture so um, that he blesses his people with um, peace it's something that we can claim as a child of God you know and um, uh, I just spoke to just praised him so his gloriousness his power his faithfulness um, and moved from like just Paul was saying moved from the thing of like, Lord, please, can you just look after this? Can you take this feeling away? And started to look at how big he is and how if he's that big, he can most definitely take this away. And I was overcome by the Holy Spirit. I was filled with a peace that um, transcended all understanding that I could possibly have. And um, it's not to say that sometimes I don't still feel anxious, but where I would struggle for months and, um, and weeks on end, I can now come to Jesus within minutes and say, I know how big you are. Um, I can look throughout scripture at how faithful you've been to your yeah. people. Um, and I can live in that. So I just want to encourage you that if you do really struggle with anxiety and you're claiming, I'm just an anxious person, throw yourself at his mercy, look through scripture, look at the promises that he's, he's made to us um, and that he's kept throughout history um, and really claim them for yourself and praise his power and greatness and faithfulness in our lives. Amen.